beginning a new series on the subject of biblical ethics. So that's our subject, biblical ethics. We don't know how long this series is going to be. It'll take shape probably as we go. But if you at all know anything about biblical ethics, you know it's a massive subject. And not just a massive subject, but a very complex subject. But I also want to emphasize that this subject of biblical ethics is intensely practical. Touching upon your day-to-day life, the decisions you make, everything you do, really. It's relevant to us in our daily lives, and we hope to show that as we go along. Now, the main concern of biblical ethics is this. How should we live? How should we live in this world? How should we conduct ourselves? What should be our manner of life? What does God require of us? What are the principles of conduct? That's actually the title of the book, and I'll introduce that here in a little bit. A book that we will be using as a guide. What are the principles of conduct that are given to us in the word of God? And how do those principles apply to various situations? So that will be a significant part of our study. Not just what are the principles that we have clearly outlined here, but then taking those principles and applying them to issues that are facing us today. Moral issues of our day. Things that were not even issues, perhaps, back when this was written. The scriptures, thousands of years ago. We have bioethics, uh, biomedical ethics, and things that we consider now that David would, uh, would not have considered, or Peter or Paul. So we're going to seek to apply these things to our lives today. The heart of the matter can be expressed in several different ways, but Psalm 128.1 seems to me to really get to the heart of the matter when we're dealing with biblical ethics. And Psalm 128.1 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Those two things go together. You can't separate them. So it's a fear of God, a reverence, a loving reverence, and then walking in his ways, conducting oneself according to the ways of God. So that's the heart of the matter. So we should come to this important study not as scholars wanting simply to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. We're going to have to think hard. We're going to have to think again and again about things. But we don't just come as scholars wanting to do some intellectual theoretical study. We come as those who love God and by his grace desire to do and to be all that God has called us to be. And that's what this study is about. That this would help us to be pleasing to God, to glorify him in our lives, to think, to feel, to speak, to act in ways that are pleasing to our God who by his grace has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. That's the aim. So we want to sharpen ourselves to live in this world, not to isolate ourselves from the world, but be in the midst of this dark world and to shine brightly as lights and to be salt in this world. That's what we are aiming to do. And God helping us, I trust that this study, however long it is, will be helpful and will sharpen us in this. Now, some of you know this, but books on biblical ethics 
abound. There's many, many books on this subject, and we have chosen one as our guide that is a classic, really, and it's Principles of Conduct, Aspects of Biblical Ethics. This is what my copy looks like. Uh, It was first published back in 1957, and it was written by John Murray. And if you were here when we were doing uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, it's the same author, uh, John Murray, and it's excellent, and it's what J.I. Packer considers Murray's masterpiece. And that's in the foreword here, which was written by J.I. Packer. And Packer distills the book into three main assertions. And I want to read this for you because this is a little bit of a map of where we're going as we're using this book as a guide. So Packer distills the book into three main assertions that Murray is trying to test and to verify. And I'm going to read here from the foreword. And here's the first assertion that Murray is going to try to test and verify. And it is that a single, perfectly coherent, what he calls divine command ethic, or simply the law of God, a single, perfectly coherent divine command ethic is taught from Genesis to Revelation and thus remains in force from history's beginning to its anticipated end. So there's a single unified biblical ethic in all of scripture and it still applies to us today. Secondly, second assertion that we'll see Murray trying to test and verify is that the grace of God is intended not to lead away from or beyond a life of law-keeping, but precisely to enable sinners for it. So God's grace in Jesus Christ, and we see Paul hammering this home, doesn't lead us away from law-keeping, but actually to law-keeping. And then thirdly, related to that, that law-keeping belongs to the purest expression of pure religion. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who fears God, that's pure religion, and who walks in his ways according to his law as he's revealed in the word of God. So that's a little map of where we're going. I want to also now survey some of the contents. And if you have this book, um, you can turn to the table of contents if you like. Uh, I'm only going to quote a few times from Murray, so you don't necessarily need this, and you don't necessarily need to read along uh, as we go through this class, but you may like to do that, and I trust it would be helpful. But let's look at the contents here briefly. We begin with introductory questions. That's what we're going to look at today, a little bit of an introduction to the topic. That's the first chapter. The second chapter, which Pastor Jim will begin to to walk through next Lord's Day, is on creation ordinances, and that will include procreation and marriage, the Sabbath, and labor. He's going to deal with those things. And then there are other creation ordinances, such as replenishing the earth, subduing it, uh, and then dominion over the creatures. So that's the second chapter dealing with creation ordinances. What were those ordinances at creation from the beginning? What has God said? What has God commanded? Thirdly would be the marriage ordinance and procreation. Fourthly, we have the ordinance of labor. And then the fifth chapter deals with the sanctity of life. The sixth chapter, the sanctity of truth. And then in the seventh chapter, it's entitled Our Lord's Teaching, and the focus there is the Sermon on the Mount. 
the Sermon on the Mount, beginning there in Matthew chapter 5. The eighth chapter is law and grace. So we're going to consider some of what we were just alluding to. Since we're saved by grace alone, the question is, what place does the law have in our lives? And then the ninth chapter he calls the dynamic of biblical ethics. Uh, We could say the energizing power or the energizing force of biblical ethics. So the question there is, how can sinful man fulfill the demands of the biblical ethic? How can we do what God requires of us, being sinners, being fallen in our nature? And the key that he highlights is union with Christ in virtue of his death and resurrection. And then lastly, there's a 10th chapter on the fear of God. It's an excellent chapter. And that is not out of place in biblical ethics. We, we deal here with this issue. It's the soul of godliness, as it's been described. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. You take it away, you have no godliness, you have no true religion. So ethical integrity, he will argue, walking in the ways of God, is grounded in and is the fruit of the fear of God. Who fears God, who walks in his ways. Psalm 128.1 again. So that's where we're going. And we're not going to just go chapter, 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 one after the other. Our plan is to teach and to then apply and discuss along the way. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But you'll also notice here that Murray is dealing with what he calls aspects of biblical ethics. This is not the full picture of biblical ethics. This isn't exhaustive. This isn't everything that we would want to study on this subject. It's just aspects of biblical ethics. But what Murray does is he lays a foundation for us in dealing with many of these issues, and then he teaches us to fish. You know, you can give somebody a fish and you you feed them. You give them a meal. But you can teach them to fish and they can feed themselves. That's what he does. So as we use Murray as our guide working through these issues, we will learn something of his method of handling the word of God as we come to various ethical issues and how we are to look at the word and understand it and then apply it. So you understand he's going to teach us his method. So we're going to learn not just from his material, from the content of his book, but from his method. And then, having been taught then from Murray how to fish, so to speak, we can deal with some other things as well. So he's going to come alongside us, and he will be our teacher and guide in some ways. Now, how do we plan to use this book, just as a basic guide, to to help us as we're laying that biblical groundwork and foundation. We're not going to work through this in every detail, but we will hopefully be digesting helpfully this material, abridging, you're going to get the abridged version of Murray, but then also adding at times things that we think might be helpful and especially relevant to us in our day. So that's the plan. And if you're inclined to read along, I think you can get this for free. There was an email sent out about that, or nearly free. If you're inclined to read along, it's not a quick read and it's not an easy read, but it's worth it. It's worth the time. It's worth the effort. It will stretch you. It stretches me at least 
and it will, I think, help you very much. So what we'll do is something like this. Teach on chapter 3, the marriage ordinance and procreation. Now, that might make two, two lessons. I don't know. But we'll teach on that, and then we might pause for one or two or more times to discuss and to apply. We might then look at a whole host of issues that are front and center today, gender and sexuality issues, divorce and remarriage, contraceptive, reproductive technologies. All of these things would come into the scope of dealing with the marriage ordinance and procreation. So you see, that's how we're planning to go here. Lay the foundation, then we discuss and apply and talk about, well, how do we as Christians today navigate all of these difficult issues without just saying, let's retreat? But how do we live in this world and shine as lights? So that's how we're going to use this book. Now, there's many resources available dealing with contemporary moral issues, and let me quickly show you two two that I have that uh, were recommended at some point, and I have just used these as references. I've not read them cover to cover. This thing is thick. Um, it is thick paper, but it's, it's a big book. And it's Ethics for a Brave New World. It's a great title. Um, John Feinberg and Paul Feinberg. And if you turn to it, you see that it's going to deal more with contemporary issues. So, Abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, I'm just reading here. Uh, introduction to the ex ethics of human sexuality, sex and birth control, homosexuality, genetic engineering, and on and on and on. So there's lots of resources to help you as you're applying specifically. And we may dip into some of these resources. And here's another one, Evangelical Ethics, Issues Facing the Church Today, John Jefferson Davis. This has been recommended by more than one person, PNR Publishing. And this, again, will deal with uh, similar such things. So lots of tools out there, um, but we're beginning with Principles of Conduct by John Murray. So let's get into our first question now as we're uh, introducing this topic. And the first question is simply this. What is or what do we mean by biblical ethics? What's biblical ethics? I turn to Merriam-Webster here, and the definition I found interesting, ethics, the principles of conduct governing an individual or a group. So the principles of conduct, that's the title of our book, governing an individual or a group. So the rules are the standards of conduct that govern an individual or a group. So we sometimes speak of professional ethics. Different professionals, they might have their book of ethics or whatever. Well, what we're talking about here is not just the principles of conduct that govern an individual or group, but that govern all of mankind. We're looking at what God has said to govern the way that we live as those who are created by him and for his glory. The word ethics comes from a Greek word ethos or ethos. Two different words, ethos or ethos, so you see it sounds like it. And Murray defines that Greek word this way, it means custom or usage. We might say habit. So this Greek word ethos, we find it in the New Testament, means habit, custom, usage, and then sometimes custom or practice that's prescribed by law. 
Let me just give two examples here. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, we read, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as we're doing today, as is the manner, the ethos, the custom or habit of some, as is the manner of some, the habit, the ethos. And then one other one that's uh, familiar, we were talking about it actually yesterday, 1 Corinthians 15.33, evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good habits, the word there, habits. So good habits means here that manner of life or conduct that's pleasing to God. If you are spending your time with evil company, it will corrupt these good habits, conduct pleasing to God, consistent with his word. Now, here's a little definition then, very simple. And Murray says this. He says, if ethics is concerned with manner of life and behavior, or we could just say conduct, if ethics is concerned with conduct, then biblical ethics is concerned with the manner of life and behavior, the conduct which the Bible requires. Simple enough, right? It's what we're talking about. The conduct that the Bible requires, that God requires. And then he goes on to say, and also that conduct which the faith of the Bible produces. So that's a little definition. Now, in speaking of manner of life and behavior or of conduct, Murray says that we need to consider or to keep in mind four things. And if you've read this, he goes into quite a bit of detail here. He calls these the correlative considerations. He just means four things we need to think about in light of this definition. I'm just going to look at two, and very briefly, and it's this. First, that ethics... Biblical ethics is not merely concerned with outward action. That's not our only concern here when we're talking about way of life and conduct. Biblical ethics, not just concerned with outward action, but, as Murray puts it, it has paramount or supreme concern with the heart out of which are the issues of life. So biblical ethics has supreme concern. That means above all, biblical ethics is concerned with your heart. Because as we read in Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 23, it's out of the heart that the issues of life spring. So we're to guard our hearts with all diligence. Because everything we do flows out of our hearts. What we say, our attitudes... Our actions, it comes from the heart. It's reflective of our hearts. So that's the first thing. And let me just illustrate this. Where do we find the core of the biblical ethic? Any ideas? Well, the Sermon on the Mount's a good answer. But even before, going back further, and Jesus is referring to it in the Sermon on the Mount. Sinai. Sinai. which is the sum of the Ten Commandments. So right, I think we can make a fair argument that if we're looking for the core of the biblical ethic, we could look to the Ten Commandments, which is summed up in love to God and neighbor, and which Jesus then further expounds on in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, So that's the core of the biblical ethic, the Ten Commandments, 
And the question we ask is, are the Ten Commandments merely concerned with outward action? The answer, I hope, clearly is no. You could even see that very much so in the first commandment, having no other gods before God, but also in coveting. That's something maybe you might be coveting, but nobody else knows it. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, whatever it is, but it's a heart issue. But especially the fact that they can be boiled down to love for God and love for neighbor. It's about the heart, preeminently, above all. So Jesus clearly shows that in giving the Ten Commandments, God was speaking to the heart and not just to our hands and our eyes and our lips and our feet. He was speaking to the heart when he gave the Ten Commandments. The law of God was given, to quote Calvin, for the government of the heart. That's why, for example, Jesus teaches that murder, the Sixth Commandment, begins where? In the heart. That's in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And then right after that, he speaks about adultery, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That can be committed in the heart. So that's the first thing. We're not just dealing with outward action. We're not just saying let's let's try to conform ourselves outwardly and that's enough. It's first about the heart. And that's why there's a chapter on the fear of God. And our first problem, of course, with our hearts is that they're not right by nature, and we need God to set them right. We need new hearts by God's grace and power. Back to our definition here. Biblical ethics is concerned with the conduct which the Bible requires. The second thing that we need to think about in light of this definition is this. As we're studying biblical ethics, the behavior that we are concerned with is not the sum total of behavior of believers in the Bible. So as we're doing this, we're not studying the sum total of behavior of believers in the Bible so that we're saying, okay, let's look at Abraham and now let's look at Moses and David and let's look at their behavior and let's bring it all together and then let's try to come up with what the biblical ethic is. That's not what we're doing. We're not just observing the lives of Old Testament and New Testament believers and then trying to draw out what God requires of us from their lives. And what's an obvious problem with such an approach? Jacob. Jacob. He was inconsistent. He's a sinner. We can't look at the lives of sinners and say, where is God's pure ethic? It doesn't work that way. The imperfection of every saint. We find inconsistency, says Murray, and contradiction in the holiest of men. Even David, where he fell so greatly into sin, and yet he was a man, a godly man, after God's own heart. So, yes, we can learn from the examples, both good and bad, of men and women in the scriptures. And even young people, you think of Daniel and his friends, We should look at the examples. We should learn from them. That's part of what they are given to us for. But we're not then to draw out the biblical ethic from those imperfect examples. That's not what we're concerned with here. Biblical ethics is not concerned with the conduct that's exemplified in Scripture but commanded in Scripture. Or to put it another way, biblical ethics is not concerned with example but edict. What God has decreed. 
what ought to be in our lives. Now, we could argue that we could look at the sum total of behavior and manner of life of our Lord, right? Because he's perfect. Only in Christ was the biblical ethic perfectly fulfilled. No other man or woman or child has ever perfectly and completely fulfilled the biblical ethic, what God requires of us. But Jesus Christ did. So we might make this argument that, well, we could look at the life of our Lord, the perfect life of our Lord, and then from that draw out the biblical ethic because there was complete conformity to the law of God. In every way, always, he walked in God's ways according to his mind and will. But what would be the problem with this approach? Well, one problem is that what we have in the scriptures, in the gospels in particular, are snapshots of the life of our Lord that focus mainly on the last few years of the life of Jesus, on his public ministry, and then have special focus on the last few days of Christ. So that while, yes, everything that we look at Every aspect of life that we see of our Lord, we can draw perfect principles of conduct. We just have snapshots and bits of the picture. We don't have a full panorama of his life. So that's one, I think, fairly clear problem with this approach. There's just snapshots. We wouldn't have the full biblical panorama of biblical ethics of what God requires of us. Does that make sense? We just have snapshots of Jesus' life. And then also, through what lens, or we say, what glasses would we put on in order to interpret the perfect conduct of Jesus? We need some lens, and we need then the scriptures, what God has required, because Jesus himself was very consciously seeking to do his Father's will. Jesus was very aware of what had been written and was seeking to live according to what was written. So we need that lens to know, to even interpret rightly, the actions of Christ. It was obedience to the will of God. And then not to mention that the teaching of Jesus, in it, he calls us back to what is written in the Old Testament in order to establish how we ought to live. It is written. It is written. So that's something of a little definition. That's what we're talking about with biblical ethics. What has God said about how we ought to live? What are the principles of conduct in the word of God? And we look to God's word, we look to the commands, we look to everything that he has ordained in his word. All right, we're going to move on then to a second basic question. And this is the last question that I'm going to deal with. He, he goes on to deal with a little bit more. So if you don't want the abridged version, you can get Murray yourself and read on. There's several more pages. But I think this is going to be most helpful for us to deal with this basic question. Can we speak of a single, unified, consistent ethic set forth in the Bible? So can we speak of a biblical ethic, one unified ethic in the the word of God? Yes, that's what we're getting at. That's actually one of the main points that Murray is getting at. 
this basic question touches on what Murray says in his preface is one of the main purposes, and that is to show the basic unity and continuity of the biblical ethic. From Genesis to Revelation, it's, it's continuous. There's continuity, basic continuity. Or we could use Packer's language that there's a single, perfectly coherent, divine command ethic taught from Genesis to Revelation. So there's not a difference as we're looking at Old Testament and New Testament. There's not a fundamental difference. There's a basic unity of what God requires. The principles of conduct of the Old Testament are not at odds with those of the New Testament. And the New Testament does not eliminate the Old Testament ethic, but what? It illuminates it. Doesn't eliminate it, it shines light on it. And it also fills it out. So he's going to go on to talk about a very important principle, and we'll talk about it in a few moments, and that is progressive revelation. Progressive revelation means that we have progress in the Bible as God is speaking to man, and as we have it here in the Bible, there is progress from Genesis to Revelation. There's more and more light. For example, the gospel was first declared back in Genesis chapter 3, that there would be this seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. So we have this as the gospel, but it's, it's, a, it's just in seed form, and it's, it's a spark of light, and it gets brighter and brighter. And progressively, there's more revelation about the gospel until you have something like Isaiah 53, which is so clear about how there will be a servant who will take our sins upon himself. And then you have the light of the New Testament. That's progress, progressive revelation. So we need to keep in mind that the New Testament doesn't eliminate the Old Testament ethic, but it illuminates it. It shines light upon it, and it also completes it. All right, but wait. There's objections, right? We're going to deal with two. Don't we find contradictions between the principles of conduct approved in the Old Testament and New Testament? There's contradictions, right? So, or at least apparent contradictions. And to answer this difficult question, Murray's going to look at two issues. Two issues that, in these ways, there seems to be a contradiction in the Old Testament ethic and the New Testament ethic. And it's in matters of polygamy and divorce for light reason. Two issues. Polygamy and divorce for light cause. So let's deal with this. We have about 10 minutes left. And we're going to deal very briefly, of course. But I hope to show that there's actually not a contradiction here. So without question, monogamy, that means marriage to only one person at a time, monogamy, no doubt that's the Christian ethic. That's what we find in the New Testament, the practice demanded by the New Testament. And without question, Old Testament saints, even giants of the faith like Abraham and David, had more than one wife at once. They practiced polygamy. So there seems to be this contradiction. Also, there appears to be no pronouncement of condemnation of the polygamy that we see practiced by the saints in the Old Testament. There seems to be no judgment against this practice. And we say, how do we deal with that? Can it be that polygamy was actually consistent with the Old Testament ethic, with God's law revealed in the Old Testament? 
and that the New Testament reverses that ethic? Is that, is that how we're to understand it? So you see the tension? What about divorce? The New Testament clearly forbids divorce for light cause, as was practiced and even permitted or allowed in the Old Testament by God's people. So how can we speak of a single consistent biblical ethic, a whole Bible ethic? So you see, you see the tension, and he's now going to help us to resolve this. If we deal with the issue of divorce, I think we deal with the issue of polygamy. So we're going to look at divorce, and it's basically the exact same argument that we can make with polygamy. And thankfully, Jesus has spoken very, very clearly about this issue. So let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And it wasn't that long ago I was preaching on this text. Mark chapter 10, Jesus is dealing with this issue of divorce that was allowed or permitted under the old covenant. So in Mark chapter 10, and you would find this also in Matthew chapter 19, but in Mark 10 verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. It wasn't an honest question. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted or allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Find that in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God, and now he's quoting from Genesis, made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Again, he's quoting Genesis, this time chapter 2, Genesis 2, 24. And the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds this. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then just to read briefly, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 19, he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So let's briefly think through the main points of Jesus' argument. Divorce, for light cause, was allowed. It was tolerated under the old covenant. But not because it was right. Jesus says it's because the hardness of your hearts. That means your hearts, their hearts, the Old Testament saints, they were hard and calloused and they were stubborn and unwilling to live according to the law of God, clearly revealed to them. So it's because your hardness of heart, Jesus says. Now, toleration or this allowance, what does it imply? It implies that that action is actually evil in God's eyes. You don't have to tolerate things that are evil. God doesn't have to tolerate righteousness or uprightness. It's evil. So the fact that it was permitted or allowed or tolerated tells us that was evil in God's eyes. 
The second main point is this, that it was tolerated. I already mentioned this, actually. So it was tolerated because of their stubbornness of heart. First two points. It was tolerated, and it was because of stubbornness of heart. So here's the third point. Thus, this allowance or toleration must not be seen as a stamp of approval by God. In no way does it approve it. It does not legitimize divorce as it was practiced in the Old Testament for like cause. So just because it was allowed or permitted, that's not, that's not to say it was legitimized, gets its stamp of approval from God. And then a fourth and final point is that we must go back to what Jesus says, the beginning. That means what God at first ordained regarding marriage, going all the way back to Genesis 2, 24. It's here in Genesis 2, this is where we have the creation ordinance, that we find the biblical ethic regarding marriage. And that biblical ethic is consistent from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, we can apply the same logic to polygamy. Polygamy under the Old Covenant, yes, it happened. And we could even say, as Jesus says here about divorce, for like cause, it was permitted, it was allowed, it was tolerated. But that does not mean that it wasn't evil. It was evil in God's eyes. It was contradictory. It was permitted because of hardness of heart. And Jesus, if he had been asked about polygamy, would have said, it was not so from the beginning. And he would have said, don't you know your scriptures? Don't you know what was written? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man, one man, and a woman being joined together as one flesh. Monogamy. That leaves no room for polygamy. So from the beginning, Jesus or God clearly laid out that it was not right. So that's how we deal with that. Does that make sense? You see how the same argument applies to both. Now, those are just two of maybe the most difficult issues, the, the issues that seem, uh, seem to contradict, to lead us to the conclusion, well, in the Old Testament, it must have been fine to have many wives or many husbands, I guess. But then in the New Testament, that's reversed, and there's a higher ethic. No, it's the same from the beginning, from the beginning. So that's what we need to remember. Now, I know that this doesn't solve all the issues with this. There's still tension, and you ask, how can this be? How can God allow men like Abraham and David to do this? Why isn't there a clear speaking out against this and clear judgment in the Old Testament if it was wrong? Well, Murray says it's not ours to resolve all difficulties in our understanding of God's ways with men. That's one thing that helps us. We leave it with God. He does all that he does is right. It's not ours to understand and resolve all the difficulties in our understanding with his ways with men. And I'm not going to get into this now, but the fact of progressive revelation does relieve much of the tension here. Because in light of the fuller and clearer revelation of the New Testament, we would expect to whom much is given, much is required. There's more revelation, there's more light, so there's going to be more required, and there's going to be a stricter judgment whenever the law of God is steered away from. So the fact that they didn't have as much light, at least this can help us relieve that tension 
there wasn't as much responsibility. But now that we have clearer light to whom much is given, much is required, there's greater responsibility. So if you want to look at that issue more, and it's worth doing it, he has about a page or so explaining how progressive revelation can help relieve this tension. I'm not going to get into that now, but it is helpful to think through that. And also to remember there's a word for us in light of our great privilege that we have a completed Bible. This is God's word, complete and final. We're not waiting for anything else. This is it. It's clear. The way of salvation is clear to us in and through Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to please God, we know that we come to Jesus Christ in faith and then we can look to all that God has commanded and by his grace walk in those ways. So we have greater responsibility. Because we have so much light. Great is our privilege, but also great is our responsibility. So, next time we're going to look at creation ordinances. Procreation and marriage, the Sabbath and so on. Things that from the beginning were ordained by God and are still relevant today. So I'll end with this thought. When we're looking at this unified biblical ethic and we're looking at... um, creation ordinances that are still relevant today, one application of this is that the Ten Commandments were not relevant for the first time at Sinai. It's not like these were ten new commandments and now they are relevant at Sinai, but then when the Old Covenant goes away, they cease to be relevant. These were things from the beginning. This is the law of God that from the beginning was binding on all men So we'll touch more on that later, but I'll just leave you with that thought, is that the Ten Commandments were but the concrete, to quote Murray, and then we're done. They were but the concrete and practical form of enunciating or spelling out principles which did not then for the first time come to have relevance, but were relevant from the beginning. So these have not gone away. It's still the core of the biblical ethic. So, this is worthy of our most careful study. I hope you would agree. As we come to this topic of biblical ethics, what does God require of us? And as we seek to apply these things, may God help us to be well-pleasing to him in all areas of life, in and through Jesus Christ and by his grace. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments and these things to think through. And we pray for light, that you would grant to us greater understanding that you would give each of us a heart to do and to be all that you have called us to do and to be. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace, for saving us, for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to live well-pleasing to you as your children, your beloved children. Help us to walk according to your ways by your grace in Jesus' name.